This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 334. And the quote of the day is, if you don't like where you are today, change something and make tomorrow look different. You're not stuck. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's up, guys and girls? Nick Ruffini here, and this is session 334 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're doing well. And for everyone here in the States, I hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving and hope it gave you a little bit of time to relax, chill, see some friends and family, reflect on what's important, and you're ready to rock and roll again now for the week. This and every episode is made possible for free by my good friends at the Musicians Institute there in the heart of Hollywood, California. They have a world-class facility. They have amazing instructors who are out there in the field, in the trenches, doing it. They've been there, done that, recorded, toured, played on records, all of that stuff, and they're there teaching as well. And you can get all the goods from them to take your career to the next level, to learn about performance, to learn about the music business, electronic music, production, all of that is available at Musicians Institute there in Hollywood, California. To learn more about MI, go to mi.edu. Now, this conversation today is a big one for me. This has been a long time coming. I've been waiting to do a or have a conversation with Mike for a very long time. And I don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't know about Mike Portnoy, but he was famously, you know, the founding member of the band Dream Theater. He was in that for 20 some years and seven years ago left and went out and was doing work with Event Sevenfold. And has been a hired gun for a bunch of different people. Now he started some new projects. So he is constantly moving forward, constantly progressing. And we talk about all that. We talk about the change in his career, talk about why he left Dream Theater. Uh, he's a little bit reluctant to talk about some of the aspects of you know the back and forth, but we get into it about why he left and all of that. And then uh, uh, practice techniques and, and things that he was doing in college and all sorts of stuff. Just amazing insight from someone who I consider to be one of the greatest drummers in the world and and uh, as far as prog drummers are concerned i mean there there aren't too many people who are beating this dude if any so a very very special interview for me like i said i've been a fan of mike portnoy's for it seems like my entire life and to have him on the podcast is an absolute honor and an absolute pleasure and i hope that you get a lot out of it as well i'd love to hear your feedback on this because again this is a really special episode for me so i hope that you enjoy it as much as i enjoyed doing it here we go with the one and only mike portnoy Mike, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. We're just realizing that it's a small world. You're sort of near my old stomping grounds there in PA. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be home for a, a couple minutes. <laughs> it's always nice coming home. Well, you're not originally from there, though, right? No, I'm from Long Island. That's New what York. I thought. Uh, yeah, I lived in New York for about, uh, I don't know, 35 years or so, and then came up here to Pennsylvania about 15 years ago. Uh, what prompted the move there? Um, my kids were recently born at that time and my wife and I just wanted to kind of get out of New York and get to something, uh, you know, more suburban and nice, nice area to raise our kids and school, nice, good school district and stuff like that. So we somehow ended up here. And you're not a far shot from, what's it about an hour for you to get sort of in the New York area? 
Yeah, it's an hour and a half into Manhattan. It's an hour into Philly. So yeah, it's it's easy to get wherever we need to go. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I while we were while I was doing some research on you know obviously I've been following you for for years. Uh, I don't think there's anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't know about you and your work and 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 whether or not they've listened to all of your stuff. They they at least know who you are. Uh, you've been very you know, very visible in the, in the drumming scene. The one thing I didn't realize was that at age 37, you were inducted into the modern drummer hall of fame. And the only other person to do that is Neil Pert. Um, do you, one, what, what was that like, um, you know, at, at that age? And two, do you feel like you were sort of ahead of your time as, as a player, um, even at a young age? I, well, I certainly don't feel I was ahead of myself as a player. I'm, I'm probably uh, my worst critic, and I'll be the first to uh, point out my limitations. I think, basically, I just happened to be doing something that struck a chord with people in the early 90s because no other drummers were, you know, playing that kind of music and writing those kind of drum parts and playing on the big, giant drum set. So I think, if anything, I was kind of a reaction to a lack of that style of drumming at the time. And now, now of course, you know, there's progressive drummers everywhere and it's become huge. But, you know, when I hit the scene 25 years ago, it was kind of out of fashion. So maybe I, you know, got some attention because of that. And I also um, went off and tried to establish myself beyond just uh, dream theater. I went out and did hundreds of clinics and I was into doing um, instructional videos and things like that, you know, before we had the internet, before we had YouTube and things like that. So I think all those things, you know, contributed to, uh, you know, I guess the, the acclaim I got, which I, you know, I'm, I have so much gratitude for and you know, I'm, I'm almost like uh, embarrassed by it, to be honest, <laughs> you know, to be, to be, a, you know, I guess, could go in the Hall of Fame uh, back in 2004. I mean, there was no, even to this day, there's no drummers my age uh, in there. You know, I was inducted when I was in my late 30s. Right. Neil Peart was the only other one to go in that young. But even now, I'm still the only, like, hard rock, metal, you know, drummer in there. You know, really? all the other people in there are, you know, Ringo Starr and John Bonham and Keith Moon and... Uh, you know, Terry Bozia, Simon Phillips, they're all guys that were older than me, and none of them were really hard rock or heavy metal drummers. You know, even like Alex Van Allen and Tommy Lee and, you know, all the, the, the guys that made their name in hard rock and metal, none of those guys have made it into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame. So to me, it's a, the ultimate uh, award and the ultimate, uh, you know, compliment and, and achievement. Uh, truly incredible, yeah. So you would mention, you know, John Bonham and Ringo Starr and, you know, there's Stuart Copeland, all of these guys who who are influences of yours. I'm I'm curious how listening to guys like that really crafted your sound only because a lot of those guys are, you know, pocket players and they don't play a lot of notes and they don't do so. But you, you know, you have you have a completely different style than those guys, but obviously they influenced your playing, too. Well, I mean, I spent 25 years in dream theater, so I wasn't able to necessarily utilize my Ringo influences or my Bonham influences or my Keith Moon influences doing that progressive music. But every once in a while, there would be songs that we would write in our catalog back then that were, you know, utilizing different influences and styles. But basically, I had to go out of dream theater to really tap into these other guys that were my heroes. Um, 
you know, so I, I put together a Beatles tribute band. I put together a Zeppelin tribute band. I put together a Who tribute band. Uh, you know, once I put together the Winery Dogs and, and Flying Colors and different bands like that, I was able to kind of tap into the, all these other drummers that are huge drum heroes of mine. And, uh, you know, in Dream Theater, I was tapping into the more progressive drummers and the more technical drummers, but it doesn't mean that that's what I only listen to. You know, my musical taste is, is very broad. And, uh, you know, Ringo Starr is one of my all-time drum heroes. Right. Peter Chris is one of my all-time drum heroes. And those guys are, you know, very different drummers than, than what I am, but it doesn't mean that I don't love and appreciate them. Mm -hmm. Were you developing your style and thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be a prog drummer or was it just the music that had, that happened to be getting written at the time and you were, you were I think it just was just the guys, I, the guys I met when I went to Berkeley. Cause right. when I went to Berkeley, I had a, a huge rush uh, side. I was heavily into Neil and Rush at that period, you know, in 85 when I went to Berkeley. But I also, before <laughs> I, I think everyone Berkeley, does that when they go to school and they start playing drum, you know, like I think everyone goes through that rush phase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was heavily in my rush phase back then, but I also was also going through a huge thrash metal phase, you know, back in like 84, 85, all the thrash bands were coming out Anthrax, Megadeth, Overkill, Exodus. Flotsam and Jetsam, early Metallica, Slayer. I was listening to all that stuff. And, and if I went to Berkeley and met a couple of guys that were doing that, I may have just as easily gone down that road and been just as happy down that road. It just so happened that I met two guys um, that were big Rush fans as well. So I ended up going down that road. But right. I think uh, my musical taste is so broad that I could have gone down any road and, and been happy. And I think that's why I've gone down all these other roads post dream theater, you know, everything from thrash with metal allegiance to, you know, uh, classic rock with winery dogs, you know, I'm now enjoying all of these other avenues, uh, you know, post dream theater. Right. 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 Is there, is there a, a band that you would love to play with that you haven't, or is there a, a someone I'd love to play with? Yeah. Like, someone's... Uh, like a fantasy. Yeah, I mean, sure. Why not? Well, I mean, you know, playing with Metallica or rush, you know, Van Halen, you know, those are my, some of my favorite bands, you know, uh, but they, they are who they are because of their drummers. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, those drummers are irreplaceable. Uh, you know, I would love to play with Roger Waters or Paul McCartney or, you know, these are, these are my all time heroes that I haven't played with. Uh, but you know, I'm honestly very fulfilled with this, this career I've had. I've played with, you know, 20 something different bands at this point. So, I can't really say that I feel unfulfilled and, and I'm still longing for something. I, I honestly feel like I've done everything I've wanted to do at this point. And I think as, as you get older, you, uh, and I would imagine, you know, I'm, I'm 36 now you're 50, right? You just turned 50. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I would imagine as you start to look back, you start to think, man, I, you know, I've been very fortunate of the things that I, that I've done. Not that it wasn't hard work on your part, but, but it's, I'm guessing that it's hard to sit there and like you said, you know, yearn for something else or, or wish that, that all of these things, uh, or that you've done all these things because you're like, man, I've done so much. I've been so fortunate to play music for a living for all of these years. Uh, I gotta, I gotta imagine as you get older, that comes even more into perspective, right? Well, you know, it's weird. You'd think most people, if you've done, you know, all the things that you've done, you'd think you would slow down, but actually I, I, I keep getting, you know, 
busier and busier. It's crazy. Right. I, you know, I, I, I have trouble saying no. So um, I keep wanting to slow down and, and kind of uh, catch my breath, but it's just one thing after the next piles up and gets added to my plate. Uh, you know, when I left Dream Theater seven years ago, I immediately went right into, you know, working with Neil Morris and putting together flying colors and adrenaline mob and working with John Sykes. And, and it hasn't stopped since for seven years now. And uh, just as one thing kind of ends, you know, winery dogs are going to take a little break or Twisted Sister finishes up their run, you know, then something else comes in. And now I have, you know, Sons of Apollo. So it, it's, it's a revolving door that doesn't seem to ever slow down at this point. I just keep getting deeper and deeper. Right. So I, I it's kind of had, a, you know, the opposite effect of what you're asking, but it's just been uh, it's just been the way it's been. And I guess I, I should be thankful for that. And not that I think that that, I, you know, anyone expected you to slow down. Uh, I was thinking more of perspective of saying, you know, if it all ended tomorrow and, and there was no more playing or something, you would be you would be OK with the things that that have that you've accomplished. Honestly, I do. I do feel that, to yep. be honest. I feel like, you know, I've. You know, I've, I've made so many different types of records with so many different bands that I do feel completely fulfilled. And, you know, I've won every drum award I could ever dream of winning. And it's like, what's left? Like, what do you, you know, what do you do at this point? It's just a matter of continuing to challenge myself and inspire myself with, with different people I work with. Uh, and the goals change, you know, now that I'm 50, I'm, you know, my, my goals are more personal ones, you know, the, the type that I want to see my kids go off and get married and have kids of their own and become a grandfather. You know, that's the sort of goals that I have now. They're more personal ones rather than uh, musical or professional ones. Sure. What do, what do all the drum awards, you know, what do they, what do they mean to you or how important are they? I should say. Well, I guess they're just a token of uh, appreciation from other drummers, which is amazing. Um, mm. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't take them as uh, a, um, uh, I don't take them seriously. You know, there's no such thing as a better drummer than somebody else. You know, there are no best drummers. There's only favorites. It's all completely subjective and different strokes for different folks. Right. You know, uh, I know there's millions of drummers out there that could play circles around me. I, I have no uh, disillusions about that. I, I, so if anything, all the drum awards I've won, they almost kind of uh, intimidate me because now suddenly I feel there's these expectations put on me to perform or create on a certain drum level. And never, I, I never really wanted to be judged as a drummer. I, I'm more of a musician. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm making a record, I'm thinking about the writing and the music and the melodies and the production. And, you know, the drums are kind of the last thing I'm thinking about, to be honest, uh, so, you know, now all these drum awards, they kind of put this expectation on me, not only from the fans, but other drummers that don't even know me. Like, oh, yeah, let's see what this guy's capable of. And, and I, you know, I've never been a competitive drummer. I, I don't look at drums as a competition. So, you know, it's it's very flattering. I have gratitude for it. Um, I won, you know, Best Progressive Drummer and Modern Drummer for 12 years in a row. I mean, that was a, a record for the magazine. Wow. Nobody had ever done that. So. It's it's incredibly flattering and it's a nice you know a nice uh, statistic to have. But honestly, I, I I can't take it seriously. It's just a it's just personal you know subjective uh, appreciation from the fans and sure. you know and 
That's nice. And I could see the pressure coming from that. You know, oh, I'm supposed to be the greatest prog drummer in the world. It's like, you know, everything you do, it's going to be under a microscope now because you have, you know, you've won this award. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That was never my intention. I never set out to be this award-winning drummer. I just wanted to play drums and make music. That makes sense. And then, you know, with, with that, the accolades come when you, I think when you serve that, uh, when you serve that muse, uh, hey, question about, about your, your thought process going into recording. Um, it like, is it different going in with, with dream theater versus going into, cause you would mention, you know, you're all, you're, you're just trying to play music, like going in the studio with dream theater versus going into the studio with winery dogs. Is that a, is that a different, is that a different process, a different thought process for you, or, or does it all feel the Actually, same? Actually, um, the process for any band that I'm a writer in, which was Dream Theater and, and is Sons of Apollo and the Winery Dogs and the Neil Morse Band and um, Metal Allegiance and Flying Colors, Transatlantic, all of these bands where I'm a, a co-writer, the mindset is always the same and the process is always the same. It's a collaborative process. Uh, usually I'm very much like kind of like the director or the arranger of the parts and the, the song arrangements, something that's a big, you know, aspect that I, that I am a part of. Um, so the process is the same, I, you know, it's, it, it, it worked for me in dream theater all those years. So I've carried it over to everything else I do. Um, you know, we write together. We'll, uh, yeah, as soon as a song is written, I like to track it while it's fresh. I don't like to overthink it. I don't like the, the demoing process. I like to be able to be spontaneous. And usually when I'm recording, I'll do multiple takes and each and every take is completely different fills and completely different parts. And I just fly on the edge of my seat spontaneously when I'm recording and writing. And the same goes with live. You know, I, I almost never play the same fill twice. I'm not that type of a drummer. So the process has been that way for me for a long, long time now, and it's the way I'm most comfortable. <laughs> I was just thinking of November Rain when you said the same fill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you guys smooth that over? <laughs> uh, the, the, my tweet to Matt Sorum many yeah. years ago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I wrote him and apologized for that. I never meant to insult him. I was merely just observing that, you know, one time it was on the radio, and I, I it struck me that the same fill happened, I think, I counted it. I think it was like twenty-seven times. Right. I don't. I don't know. I just popped into my head when you said that, and I was like, "Was well, there's a thing with November?" No disrespect right? to Matt. Matt's Matt's a great drummer, and and I've heard him play some amazing stuff. So I totally did not mean to disrespect or insult him. You know, it was just an, <laughs> merely an observation. Right. 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 Well, and it's you know text and tweets and all that can get misconstrued. So. Yeah, absolutely. Once, once in a while, they get a little out of hand. Um, so you would mention, I like to bounce around a little bit because that, because that's the, the way that my brain works. And you would mention leaving Dream Theater. And I know that you cited, you know, most of the reason was that you were sort of going in this, in this hamster wheel of touring, you know, going, you're in, you're always in a tour cycle, right? Or you're in a writing cycle. And it was just, it was the, just the same thing over and over and over again, right? Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, that was my feelings. Um, you know, around 2010, I just, uh, you know, I'd been doing it for 25 years with the same people and uh, pretty much a two-year cycle that I could set my watch to and every two years in the same studio writing and then, you know, every two years playing the same venues. I could pretty much, you know, just put it on the calendar and count on it. And, you know, there's something to be said for that kind of um consistency in a career and, and that kind of comfort. 
But to me, uh, I needed other things. I needed other people. I needed other style of music. Uh, I needed to break the cycle. And, and you know, I, I tried to uh, suggest a break to break the cycle. And, uh, you know, they, they weren't ready to take a break. So, you know, the rest is history. I, I figured I would, uh, you know, I didn't want to stay and forever regret other things that I could have done. You know, right. I wanted to follow my heart and try new things with new people and get out of that cycle. You know, if they weren't willing to, to break the cycle uh, with me, then they were, they were going to have to do it without me. So. so I'm guessing there wasn't a concern about, oh, maybe I'm going to get into another cycle with another band doing the same thing. Um, because it would well, be, because that was it would a be 25 fresh. year cycle. Right. So if I, you know, I don't know if I have that many years left in me to begin another 25 year cycle with another band. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I've now gone off to, you know, form and play with, you know, I don't know, uh, six, eight, ten other bands. So how, how could you possibly get, uh, you know, bored or, or, or redundant when you're in that many bands with that many different musicians playing that many different style of music right you know it keeps it fresh for me sure was how amicable was it when you when you left i was very very difficult of course you know yeah. um it was a band that i formed and and oversaw and kind of you know ran as a leader for for many 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 years and uh you know those guys we grew up together we went you know we started in college together and by the time i left we were in our 40s and you know our kids were born together and we went to each other's weddings. So yeah, it was incredibly difficult. And those guys actually uh, begged me to stay, you know, for, for weeks before, uh, before they finally accepted it and moved on and started looking elsewhere. But it was very, very hard on, on all of us. Because I know that you were, you left, started working with event sevenfold. And then what was the reasoning or why you decided to maybe try to come back? Were you sort of I, I really don't want to rehash this, to be honest. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, this happened seven years ago and, uh, you know, look, I have enough on my plate that I, I like to look towards the future. I have a lot going on and, sure. you know, reliving, reliving that, that past is not, not fun for me. No, I respect that. There was listeners who were asking. Uh, so that's why, that's of why course. I, I, po- I get I asked it every day, but that doesn't mean I want to talk about it. Hey, that's, that's totally fine. Um, one of the interesting things that that I find is how people balance life, family life, fa- you know, wife, kids, touring. Um, and there's a lot of listeners here who are either, you know, touring regularly or looking to tour more regularly. W- what's your advice for for sort of balancing that and that whole thing? Well, the way it's worked for me is that I never drew a line in the sand separating uh, family and and business. I always included my family and welcomed my family in anything I did. Uh, so whenever I was on tour, they were always welcome. And, you know, my kids did grow up on the road traveling with me. And I think that's how I've been able to make it work. I, I never separated the two. I always welcomed my family in, in my career. And, you know, as they got older, they, uh, you know, were going to school and really didn't want to join me on tour anymore. And that's fine too. And but they've grown up. My family has grown up, uh, you know, with me touring as much as I do. And, and, uh, not only have I always welcomed them, but I think it's also worked in the time that we have away from each other as well. I think a lot of, uh, marriages, you know, if you're home all the time and breathing down each other's necks every day of the week and, you know, you start, I, I think sometimes the separation 
that my wife and I have with me on the road has is, is been a very good thing for us. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, yeah. I know that I know that when I, you know, my when I travel or my wife travels, uh, it's nice even to be home for a couple of days just by yourself. You know, you just have some, like you said, you're not breathing down each other's throats. And you get a little bit of, get a little bit of you time and can, you know, can sort of step, yeah, that's step, important. step back Absolutely. a little bit. DW Drums has been the drummer's choice for years, but they didn't start out as a drumming company. They actually started in 1972 in Santa Monica, California as a drum school. Don Lombardi was teaching drum lessons, and in 1974, they introduced the first height-adjustable trap case seat. It was the first product they ever brought to market. They actually didn't even start making drums until 1982, and they have a whole story that you can check out on their site. If you go to dwdrums.com, you can follow along their amazing journey from starting as a drum school to being one of the biggest drum brands in the world. Check it out. Go to dwdrums.com. It's super interesting. Check it out. Promark has released their newest drumstick, the Promark Firegrain. This firegrain drumstick utilizes a revolutionary heat tempering process that transforms ordinary hickory drumsticks into precision tools with unprecedented durability. They keep the original weight and balance and feel, but these Promark Firegrain sticks allow drummers to hit harder and play longer naturally. There's no excess vibration, no space age gimmicks, just natural hickory, and it's hardened by flame. And it also gives them a really unique look as well. There's no synthetic material materials or anything like that. It's just hickory. And you can learn more about Firegrain by going to promark.com. Now let's get back into it with the legendary Mike Portnoy. I want to talk about some some current projects that you have uh, going on, but there's one question I have about sort of get, and this is less of a, of a dream theater question and more of just a, a general question about in, when you're in a situation that you feel like you need to break the cycle or you need to to do something different, because I think we as musicians get in ruts, right? Whether it be with playing, whether it be with touring with a certain band, whether it be working on a certain project, and it's hard to get out of those those situations, frankly. Something, especially if you're economically dependent on some of these situations. Uh, do you have any insight or or advice or you know words of wisdom to to sort of cross that that bridge and and move on to something new? Well, maybe I'm a bad person to ask this question because you're talking to somebody that's currently in six different bands. <laughs> so, you know, my my answer is I, is to just, you know, work with many different people. I mean, that's what I've done. I've surrounded myself in, with, with so many different bands and projects and tours that that um, it's almost impossible to get bored or get in a rut because I'm just jumping from one to the next to the next. So you know, maybe I'm not the best person to ask this question, but that's what, that's what's worked for me. But obviously I'm in a different situation where I'm, you know, 30 years into my career and and I can do that. So, um, you know, if if you're a younger person, I would say, um, you know, do what I, what I just said I did, you know, but maybe you don't have to be in six different bands, but maybe just try playing with some other people, a, a different style of music, just to, you know, just to give yourself some new inspiration. Um, you know, that's what's always worked for me. I, I think I've just taken it to an extreme example. <laughs> you like to be busy. I get it. You know, it's, it's, I think it's boring just sitting around doing nothing. So, um, so do you, do you compartmentalize things in terms of the bands that you're playing with and the, the styles of music that you have to play and the, you know, all the, or does it all just sort of, is it all sort of one thing to you? It just, it just happens to be different people that you're playing with. 
No, they're, they're each different dynamics. Uh, there's different drum kits for the different bands. There's different uh, hats that I have to wear in the different bands. Sometimes I'm more of a leader. Sometimes I'm more of a team player. Sometimes I'm just a, a hired gun playing drums, like with Twisted Sister or Avenged Sevenfold. So each one of these different situations are not only different musically and different personally, but, you know, the, the, the kits and the, the, the responsibilities change as well. So I have to compart, com, compartment, I can't say that word. I, I, I stumbled over in my yeah. brain a few times before but I said I, it myself. I have to do that. In order to be able to jump from one to the next to the next, I have to be able to shift and roll with, with the changes. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, what about in the in the practice room? Is it um, is it different? Is it a different approach to the to the practice, learning the tunes and all that, or do you learn the same way? I learn it the same way, and and to be honest, it's not behind the kit. To me, uh, if I have to learn something, I just listen to it over and over because to me, it's about uh, understanding the parts, understanding the song arrangement. Uh, usually, performing the drum parts to me is second nature. I honestly never have to sit down and work on it or, or think about it. I just have to listen to the song. And then it, once it's in my head, it's there. Hmm. Do you think that learning, trying to figure out the mechanics at the same time gets in the way of learning the tune? It's different for different people. For yeah. me, like I said, the drums just happen. You know, I don't think about them. Right. Uh, I think about all of the other elements when I'm either creating or, or pre preparing for a tour. Um, so it's different for different people. I know a lot of people have to sit down and learn, you know, exactly what all four of their limbs are going to be doing and sit down and practice it. But that's just not my, my thing. I've always kind of been a, a listen and go guy. I'm a kind of a, a, a freak of nature in that respect. You know, <laughs> uh, I like to, I like to always round out the, the conversation about practice, because like you said, I think everything, I think everyone's practice routine has to be right for them. So I like to, let my guests talk about how they practice, maybe how you practice years ago at Berkeley, maybe how you practice now, um, but giving some advice and tips for, for practice. And then so the listener can sort of take pieces from what you say, take pieces from what others say and put together their own practice routine that works good for them. Um, did you have a specific thing that you were doing in Berkeley or that, you know, that has worked for you over the years that you, that you feel is effective? Well, when I was younger, uh, like before Berkeley and at Berkeley, my practice routine was usually learn, listening to records and learning and analyzing other drummers. And that's how I somehow put them all into the melting pot and came up with my own thing. You know, my thing was a melting pot of Neil Peart and Bill Bruford and Lars Ulrich and Ringo Starr and Keith Moon and John Bonham. And I would learn all of their parts and not only learn them physically, but learn them mentally and understand how they, you know, how and why they created their drum parts the way they did. Mm -hmm. So very early on, that was my thing was, was learning music and learning songs. Do you think that's and a lost art? Later on, well, it probably is these days because now everybody's online and watches things on YouTube, which is a good thing as well. I mean, I think that's why the, the level of technical drumming has gone through the roof. And you see these 12 year old kids that are doing shit that I could never do in a million years. Right. It's because they, you know, they have these tools to work with that we didn't have when we were younger. When I was younger, there were no visuals. You had to listen to your records and play along with them. And that's how I did it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then, then came instructional videos and then, and then came YouTube. So it's different for, for different generations, but for my generation, that's how I learned. And that's how I practiced. 
Um, I would practice a lot to music and, and other drummers. And then the other advice is, you know, it's important to play with other musicians as well, not just sit in your room and practice because you could have all the chops in the world, but if you don't know how to um, apply them to being in a band or to writing music, then, then it's just masturbation. Right. You know, like, it, you know, I think it's very important to play with other musicians and, and make music together. So to me, that's always been the priority. Uh, music. Music first. You know, it's different. It's different for different people. Different people have different priorities and different uh, goals and different motives. So you know, I can only speak for myself. And I think that concentration on music is important. One, because that's the goal. But two, I also think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, I think if you're learning something technical, you know, whether it's four, you know, four limbs trying to do all this different stuff or whatever it is. It's never going to make its way into your playing if you're not thinking about it musically or if you're not practicing it musically or if you're not, you know, using it in a musical context. And I think I've been guilty of that as a as a younger player. I would, you know, I play play something super technical and then I get to the gig and it just I couldn't play it because I never I never right. made it music. I just made it this math thing. Right. Yeah, I see a lot of young drummers like learning some of my parts from the complicated dream theater stuff. Like they'll learn how to play the dance of eternity. And it's like, okay, well, that's, that's impressive. But what the hell are you going to do with that in your music? You know, I, I, you know, to me, I don't look at a song like that in terms of my um, performance. I, I look at it like, you know, how I wrote it, you know, there were all those patterns were coming from the drums and those were patterns that I wrote and, and, you know, the song was built around. I, I think people need to kind of look at the composition of song as as probably the most important element of, of you know, whatever instrument you're playing, not only drums, but, uh, you know, just mimicking complex drum parts isn't going to help you understand how to write your own drum parts and how to write your own songs. Right. Uh, I think it's important to work with other people and, and concentrate on, on that element. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, this is sort of an analogy, but it's like when you see something that's written either in the news or, you know, on, on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, and it's just a quote, but it's taken completely out of context and it could be misconstrued as something completely different than what the person was actually saying. You pull that out of context and it doesn't make any sense or it could be offensive or it could be this or it could be that. Yeah, absolutely. I see that every day <laughs> with uh, some of these these metal websites, you know, it happens to me constantly. It's, it's, it's very frustrating. Oh, just, well, just important to look misquoted or you're saying yeah, like being misquoted taken out of context or trying to have some sensational headline that's taken out of context, you know, and you could say the same for drumming. You know, I think it's important to look at the bigger picture. Right. 100%. Now you'd mentioned you love not looking back, looking towards the future. Uh, I'm really interested to talk about some of the projects that you have going on now. Uh, some things you're excited for, for the future, some tours, because I know you're going to be out on the road. Um, so tell us about really, tell us about the 1300 bands that you're playing in. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, what do I have? I mean, the most important thing and the, the primary thing on, on my plate at the moment is Sons of Apollo, which is, you know, my new band with Derek Trinian and Jeff Scott Soto and Billy Sheehan and Bumblefoot. And, uh, we'll be hitting the road and starting in February and, and pretty much that's going to be my focus for all of 2018. Uh, that's probably going to keep me the busiest on the road all throughout the world. But uh, in addition to that, there's there's always other things brewing, and we're going to start a new Neil Morse Band album in January. 
And I'm also uh, currently finishing up the new Metal Allegiance album, which will be out uh, sometime next year. And uh, we also started work on a new Flying Colors album, so hopefully we can get back to that and complete that soon. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, I don't know, that's four out of the six bands on my plate at the moment. Right. <laughs> what's what's the thought process behind putting out the record? Um, is it mere because I mean you're not doing it for album sales, right? Um, so is it for for new music to tour with, or is it you know what's the what's the thought process behind that? Well, I love touring. So any bands that I'm a part of, um, you know, we do go on the road. It's not like I've ever done any projects that are just, you know, with studio projects where we've made a few albums and that's that. Actually, I did do that uh, years ago with OSI, but that wasn't necessarily my project. That was something I was involved in. But other than OSI, everything else I'm a part of goes on the road and plays live. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's, you know, that's what separates the men from the boys. And that's, you know, you want to interact with, the fans and let them hear the music in person and feel it and be a part of it. Uh, to me, that's my favorite part of what I do. Um, so every one of these bands and projects that I'm a part of, you know, ultimately the goal is to get on the road and, and take it to as many people to share the music in person as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I asked that, because I, I feel like things have flip flopped, right? Years ago, you put out an album and you toured to support the album to sell records. And now it seems like you put out an album to prime the pump to go tour. Yeah, I mean, well, most bands, that's the only way they can even make money. Sure. To me, my, my motivation is never money or sales. Um, my my motivation is creative, um, you know, satisfaction. Um and then getting on the road, my motivation is to just, like I just said, to bring it to the people and have that interaction. Uh, but for a lot of other bands, you know, that that's the only way to make any money at this point on merchandise or whatever. And that's, you know, that's the unfortunate reality of, of you know, the, the record industry in 2017. It's tough because, like you said, it separates the men from the boys and the bands that are good at touring and enjoy touring and want to be touring. I think it's a it's a good state of the music business, but the guys, you know, like Steely Dan could never could never, you know, start now and do what they did. Just mm -hmm. being a studio band selling records, um, which we already right. know. We we already know all of that. So what you know, I, I don't know what the what it looks like for for bands who can't tour. You know, I guess it's survival of the fittest, I guess. Right. Well, now it's at a, uh, the, the point where bands a lot of times have to buy onto a tour or buy mm -hmm. onto a package. So, uh, you know, that's just taking it to a whole new level. That's because the, the headlining bands aren't making enough money. So they need the, the younger upcoming bands to support them. I, I think that's completely backwards and I hate everything about that. And just so the listeners know what's happening is like, if you know, whoever goes on tour, the younger band literally pays that headliner to be on the tour with them. Yeah, it's completely backwards. See, I always, um, maybe just because I'm a fan myself, but, you know, through all the years in Dream Theater, I was the one that handpicked the opening bands and always wanted to give uh, younger or upcoming bands the opportunity to play in front of our audience. And, I, you know, that was, to me, very important to helping the scene. You know, with Dream Theater, I took out everybody from Porcupine Tree to Pain of Salvation to Fate's Warning to Spock's Beard. Galactic Cowboys. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, um, you know, it was always to try to help build the scene and help the, the scene. Uh, whereas today it's, you know, it's, it's, it's backwards. It's very frustrating. 
what got your attention for bands that that you would bring on as an opener because i know a lot of a lot of bands now i mean i get emails about it all the time hey how do you how do you recommend you know opening for a headliner or getting on a tour or you know getting more exposure for the band so what was something that stood out to you well for me i'm just a music fan so i was listening to these bands as a fan even though they were smaller than me I and mean, even though spock's beard when i discovered them nobody knew who they were but i loved them i loved the music uh, and it just so happened that I was a music fan and somebody that followed younger upcoming bands. And I'm still the same way now. I still hear all these newer upcoming bands and I want to help them if I can I talk about them and, you know, take them on tour. Uh, but not every band has people like me that are music fans. You know, not mm-hmm. every band has people that are like that. Uh, I always put an emphasis on it and trying to help uh, up and coming bands, but you know, not everybody's like that. Yeah. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the the state of the industry and the future of the industry? Well, the industry is just going to get worse and worse and worse, but that's not a reflection on the music. I think, you know, there's more great music out there than ever before. There's just, uh, you know, more and more. And now bands, you know, can make albums right in their basement and then have it on the internet spread all throughout the world. Uh, without a record company. So it's bad for the record companies and the industry, but it's good for the musicians. And there's just more and more good music out there. There's also more and more bad music out there as well. Right. But at least there's more. <laughs> I wonder if there's more bad music or we're just hearing more of it because of the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably it. You know, I saw an ad the other day and they were talking about musicians getting together um, to, to write some, some, write some music. And it's a 45-second video ad. It's a Spotify ad. Not one musician playing an instrument. Not one. I said, oh, wow. I said, how, how did a bunch of musicians get together to write all these songs? And there's no, there's no one even playing an instrument. Um, yeah. So that, I, I guess I, for me, I would pose the question to you about the, the drumming industry. Cause we're, we're talking like, it seems like there's more people playing music. There's people, there's more people creating. There's, there's more creativity out there than ever before, but less people are playing instruments, less people are taking mm-hmm. music lessons. You know, all the, all the drum companies are crying that they're, that they're not selling enough instruments. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, do you think it's more people playing electronic instruments? Do you think it's more people using garage band instead of, you know, a drum set? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times uh, I see it myself uh, with, with, you know, bands that I know that, you know, that when they're doing demos or even making real albums, you know, you can get lazy and just do everything in Pro Tools and move things around. And, or, you know, uh, it's it's a lot easier to sit in front of a computer and, and build an album or build or create music that way than actually playing in a in a room with other musicians. That's not the way I work. I mean, I, I need to play. Um, but I know in 2017, and you know, some of these younger musicians, you know, it's easier to just sit in front of a computer and, and do the work that way. Right. I wonder what the long-term effects of that are going to be. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for taking all the time to chat with me. I do appreciate it. Uh, you've been a big influence on mine, the listeners, and and for, for many, many years. So I do appreciate that. And last thing, if people want to follow you, keep up to date with all of the dates you have going on and all that, where's the best place that they can do that? Just all over social media, Twitter, uh, my Facebook page, just go to Mike Portnoy on any of them. And, and I'm very active and constantly posting the dates and updates and, you know, where, wherever I'm, wherever I am, you'll be able to find me. Once this comes out, I'll, I'll send you all the information via social. And Mike, thank you again. I do appreciate it, man. And uh, safe travels out there on the road. My pleasure. Thank you, man. All right. Thanks, Mike. Bye.
That wraps it up with the one, the only, the legendary Mike Portnoy. And I would love to hear your feedback on it. And you can just do that by going to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, any of that. I'm at Drummers Resource on Twitter. It's Drummers R Source. Uh, too many characters for for Twitter apparently, but would uh, would love to hear your feedback. And again, I hope you had a fantastic holiday, and I hope you have an amazing week. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.